All right. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening, wherever you're at in the world. It is Sunday where we're at here doing this uh, part seven of the uh, field training uh, manual 2000-25. So yes, it is Sunday, July 24th, 2022. And so this is going to be a continuation of the last uh, of the last uh, part that I did in part six, because this was such a long section in the book um, that, you know, again, because I typically do these shows in the evening. And so I try to be done at a certain time so I can get to bed you know, early enough here. So I ended up having to uh, cut it a little short. And so we're going to do a continuation from part six into, um, in, into part seven here. So part six and part seven are all part of the same section in the field training manual, 2000-25. And so we left off. So what, so let's see. So right now where I'm at, I'm on page 47 for anybody that wants to pull up a PDF or a printout that they have. So I'm going to be on page 47 toward the bottom where it starts off with Daniel Boone. Now, what we were discussing is, um, let me just scroll up here to the top real quick because I want to make sure my words are not incorrect here. So what we were discussing in lesson four, if you will, of this manual is the great Americans and their achievements. Okay. And so we had made it all the way down to page 47 from page 39, and we ended off by Daniel Boone, or at least that's where we're going to be starting up with is Daniel Boone. And so we're going to start off right out of the gate. Let me just adjust my microphone. There we go. All right. Now, as far as Daniel Boone, he was a native of North Carolina. He was born and developed under conditions that gave him physical strength and endurance beyond the average courage, daring, and self-reliance. And he was, um, he was peculiarly fitted for what he declared to be the mission of his life, ordained of God to settle the wilderness. He was the highest type of wilderness explorer. Living to the age of 86, wow, and back in those days, that was not really normal. Living to the age of 86, he will continue to live throughout the, anal, the annals of our history as an outstanding type of the earliest American. Wow, I'm just still, I'm still astounded that he, Daniel Boone, lived to 86 because back in those days, most people died at a very early age. That's, an, that's just amazing. Wow. But Daniel Boone exemplified, he was exemplified in his life, the value of clean living, high principles, and hard labor. Now, with regards to the settlement of Kentucky, Undaunted by the unknown dangers of great swamps and forests matching wits and woodcraft with the roving bands of hostile Indians, he led the first group of settlers across the Blue Ridge Mountains into the rich country of Kentucky. Here, amidst untold hardships, privations, and danger, there was set up the beginning of what has grown to be a mighty state rich in natural resources and richer still in the treasure of its manhood and womanhood, descendants of the sturdy stock of Daniel Boone and those who followed him. 
These hardy pioneers bred into the succeeding generations that strength of purpose, endurance, initiative, and determination which has contributed to so much of the richness and virility of American character. Now, we move on to George Rogers Clark. Captain George Rogers Clark saved the settlers in Kentucky from massacre by the Indians and was the hero of the conquest of the Northwest Territory, now represented by Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, Michigan, and Wisconsin. As far as the military expeditions, he led his small force of less than 200 men against the French outpost of southern Illinois. With their capture, he turned his attention to the British garrison at Fort Saxville, on the Wabash River in Vincennes, Indiana. I hope I pronounced that right. In the capture of this fort, Captain Clark and his sturdy band accomplished one of the most difficult marches in military history, crossing the, quote, drowned lands, end quote, of Southern Illinois. In the month of February, 1779, they carried on through water, oftentimes above the waist without provisions or supplies other than what they carried upon their backs. Wow. Through a wilderness untraveled and unknown by white men, this small band of backwoodsmen took the British by surprise, demanded and received the unconditional surrender of the garrison. By this remarkable exploit, America was forever rid of foreign domination and title to this region was given to the United States. Huh. It's very interesting. I didn't know that. Now, as far as his monument, now Captain George Rogers Clark was among the greatest of the forefathers of the Midwest. By the inspiration of his spirit, fortitude, and courage, his handful of men acquired possession of this inland empire of America by acts of heroism serving without pay and assuming the debts contracted in the campaign. Captain Clark magnified his devotion to his country. The memorial Oh, uh, let's see here. The memorial to his self-sacrificing service is not to be found in tablets or statutes of bronze, but rather in the great commonwealths that now comprise this territory, the heart of America. I'm going to pause for a second as we proceed into page 49. While we get, you know, before we get to Lewis and Clark, I just want you all to know if you hear me stumble on a word it's not because i don't know how to read clearly i know how to read but if you hear me stumble it's because these are pages that were copied from the original manual and as you can probably guess that the manuals that were still survived the destruction from fdr um are probably very you know they're very uh jacked up and so to get them scanned and have them be very good quality scans. Sometimes a couple letters or words will uh, make their way off the page. So that's where I have to try to guess, use my best judgment to guess what word that it's trying to spell there. Now we move on to page 49, Lewis and Clark. Now in May of 1804, Captains Meriwether Lewis and William Clark proceeded to St. Louis, Missouri in obedience to the following order issued by President Jefferson by authority of Congress. And that, that order says, go up to Missouri to its sources, find out, if possible, the fountains of the Mississippi and the true position of the Lake of the Woods, cross the Stony Mountains, and having found the nearest river flowing into the Pacific, go down, go down it to the sea. Now, as far as the expedition, 
Outfitting in St. Louis, Captain Lewis and Captain Clark with four sergeants and 23 privates of the regular army and an Indian interpreter began the long, tedious journey up the swift current of the Missouri, reaching its headwaters approximately one year later. Crossing the Rocky Mountains through the Bitter Root Range, they found the Clearwater River. Proceeding down its course through exceedingly rough country to the Snake River in what is now Idaho, they continued on to the northwest to the junction of the Snake with the Lordly Columbia. Launching their canoes upon the broad reaches of the most beautiful stream in October in 1805, they drifted down to the Pacific Ocean, reaching their destination November 7th, one month later. Bet that was a fun ride. Returning from their, returning from there to St. Louis, with their surveys and maps of the regions explored, they completed the required journey in a little over two years' time. Wow. It's just simply astounding that they were able to do that. And yet people complain about taking their car just to go up the road to, you know, get a few items. These guys mapped out America on foot and horse and buggy, and it took two years time. That's just amazing. All right. Now, as far as the claim of United States to territory established. Now, how little was known of the great domain secured to the United States is the purchase of the Louisiana Territory, and that was revealed in part by the wording of the president's order. How much was learned and its importance to the nation was contained in part in the report those two intrepid army officers gave upon their return. The most important result obtained was the firm establishment of the claim of the United States by overland exploration, its first claim being made through the earlier discovery of this North Pacific contrary by Captain Robert Gray of Boston, who sailed his ship from the Pacific Ocean up a great river in 1792, naming it the Columbia. In honor of the 300th anniversary of the discovery of America by Columbus. Now the new country. Lewis and Clark, the Lewis and Clark expedition gave the people their first idea of the vast area, enormous natural resources, and grandeur of the Pacific Northwest. They were the forerunners of what soon became the mighty host of emigrants into the land of the setting sun. Now, as we get into Reverend Marcus Whitman, going from pages 49 to 50, it says, 30 years after Lewis and Clark's expedition, Reverend Marcus Whitman packed all his earthly possessions in a wagon and with his bride trekked across the plains and mountains over what became known as the Oregon Trail to the Walla Walla country as a missionary to the Indians. Impressed with the beauty and richness of the country, he seemed to have lost sight of his special mission as seven years later he took the trail back to civilization, there to urge his countrymen to follow him in the possession of this new land. Now, with Western immigration, acting as a guide for this band of immigrants recruited largely in New England, he led them over westward in the, in the all but impossible journey of nearly 4,000 miles. The story of the hardships and perils, the labor, sickness, and starvation, the fight with Indians and nature, serves again to prove the sturdiness, self-reliance, and courage of the pioneers of America. And I'm probably going to date myself a little, not that I'm really old, but if anybody's ever played the game Oregon Trail on computer, I think you could still find it on the internet. Go in there and check it out. Yeah, it's very low quality, 
low graphics, but super cool game. I used to play that hours on end. Absolutely love that game. It was such a cool game. Now, as far as the sterling qualities of racial stock, every advancing step in the progress of our nation emphasizes the sterling qualities of the racial stock that handed down to succeeding generations has given the urge and the will to do the fruits of which are today enjoyed by a prosperous and hot, happy posterity. Now, the boundary adjustment. These men and women who so bravely followed Whitman over the Oregon Trail saved that great country to the United States. The cry in 1846 was that the British must go. The whole of Oregon, or none, 54 to 40, or fight. In the spirit of fair play and justice, the differences with Great Britain were adjusted. The boundaries were fixed, and another great step in the expansion and settlement of our nation was accomplished. Now, as we get into General John C. Fremont, he was a junior officer of the United States Army at the age of 29 years. Fremont was designated by the Secretary of War to explore a route from western Missouri to the South Pass. Now, as far as the exploration of the Southwest in accomplishing his mission, he followed the Arkansas River to its source in the Rocky Mountains. On a later expedition, he made his way through Utah to the Great Salt Lake and then through the deserts of Nevada and across the Sierra Nevada, where he found his journey leading through the mammoth trees and along the roaring torrents of the California country, reaching the Mexican city of Monterey, some 130 miles south of San Francisco on the Pacific Ocean. Now, with regards to the Mexican War, through the exercise of diplomacy, he was able to remain in the vicinity until after the outbreak of the Mexican War, when he headed a revolt against that government and freed the territory of California from Mexican authority, becoming the governor of the territory which was ceded to the United States by treaty following the conclusion of the war with Mexico. Hmm. So interesting. Now, a contemporary... Contemporary with Fremont, another brilliant young army officer, Colonel Kearney, afterwards Brigadier General, fought his way across the plains of Texas to Santa Fe, New Mexico, and after its capture, continued across the deserts of New Mexico, Arizona, and Southern California to a union of his small army with Fremont in California. As far as a territorial acquisition, as a result of the splendid work of these men, coupled with the success of General Scott and Taylor in Old Mexico, there was added to the domain of the United States the last of the Great Southwest Area, a territory of nearly one million square miles, a section of our country which within one year thereafter became the goal of the adventurous spirits of the world due to the discovery of the fabulous gold deposits along many of the watercourses flowing to the Pacific Ocean, from the western slopes of the mountains bordering eastern California. Now, Eli Whitney, a pioneer of modern industry and invention of cotton gin, he was a school teacher from Massachusetts living in Georgia in 1798. He invented a machine called the cotton gin by use of which a Negro could easily clean 300 pounds of cotton a day, demonstrating thereby, as a no previous invention had done, the value of machinery in replacing or augmenting manual labor. The whole question of cotton production and cotton manufacture was changed through the use of this invention. Previous to the invention of the cotton gin, cotton yarns were spun and woven into cloth by hand in private homes. Necessarily by this slow method of manufacture, but small quantities of cotton were used 
And then that's when we got into the development of the cotton industry. So rapid was the development of the industry stimulated by this new gin that within the next 20 years, exports of cotton to Liverpool increased tenfold. And as a result of this invention, a cotton factory was erected in Massachusetts to produce cloth like that made in England. Here was constructed the first loom operated by water power in America. In 1814, there was builded at Waltham, Massachusetts, the first cotton mill in the world in which the raw material directly from Whitney cotton gin was spun into thread, woven into cloth, and printed with colors all under one roof. Now, as we talk about the influence on country, the production of cotton was stimulated and made one of the leading industries of the country. Cotton exports enormously increased, allied industries developed, communities grew rapidly into cities. The invention of the cotton gin created unforeseen social, economic, and political conditions. It largely put a stop to the discussion of slavery. The southern planters and northern manufacturers of cotton found it to, to their mutual interest to keep the Negroes in bondage, the book's words, by the way, not mine, since by his labor, they were rapidly growing rich. And I'm going to pause there. We're still seeing that to this day. It doesn't matter what color you are. They're using the bondage of humanity as a whole for their rapid wealth gain. And this is exactly what we're trying to escape by returning back to self-governance. It doesn't matter who you are, what your policies and ideologies are, and what color you are. This has to be a fight for freedom for humanity. I digress. Continuing on. Due to the climatic conditions, the manufacture of cotton goods was carried to New England, thus opening a new channel of employment, causing in following years a radical change in the nationality of the citizens of these northern states. The interchangeability of mechanical parts. Now, while Whitney was the inventor of the cotton gin, because of the theft of his model and tools from the shed in which he conducted his experiments, he was not enabled to perfect his invention. He instituted the interchangeability of parts, which has greatly influenced modern industry. In 1798, he secured a contract from the government for the manufacture of firearms, being the first to effect the division of labor by which each part was made separately. It was from this invention that he made his fortune. Now, it's Robert Fulton. He was a pioneer of steam navigator navigation. Let me repeat that because I feel like I just butchered that. Robert Fulton, a pioneer of steam navigation. It is proper and fitting to designate Robert Fulton as the pioneer, as the pioneer of modern transportation by reason of his, of his success in driving the Claremont in the year 1807 against the current of the Hudson River from New York City to Albany. Huh. Other inventors. It is true that no less than eight men had at various times in places propelled boats by steam power prior to their uh, this accomplishment by Robert Fulton, yet none of them carried out their experiments to a successful issue. Fulton's success was largely due to his cleverness and ingenuity, coupled with the fortunate circumstance of a partnership formed with Robert Livingston, a man of wealth also interested in solving the problem of steam navigation. 
Now, there was a legislative branch, and so Livingston was so sure of final success through his own various experiments as to induce the legislature of the state of New York to pass a bill granting exclusive right to navigate the waters of that state by steam power upon condition that a boat of 20 tons be driven by steam at a minimum speed of four miles an hour against the current of the Hudson. This feat to be accomplished within one year from the date of grant. He failed in his effort. Later, he was appointed minister from the United States to France. Now, the submarine. Now, in 1803, while in Paris, Fulton demonstrated his, quote, submarine in the river sign. Encouraged by the success of this experiment, Fulton and Livingston ordered a steam engine from Watt and Bolton in England to be shipped to America, where Fulton found it on his return in 1806. The Claremont. In the following year, the Claremont was built and launched in East River. Its successful trip opened the way to a complete revolution of water transportation. Within the next few years, so rapid was the adoption of this new method of travel, steamboats came into use upon the principal rivers of the Great Lakes, rendering splendid assistance in establishing easy communication between distant sections of our country traversed by the great waterways. Now, progress in water transportation. To fully appreciate the value of the contribution made by Fulton and Livingston to the economic development and enrichment of America, one has only to review the remarkable progress made in water transportation, contrasting the present accomplishments with those of a hundred years ago. <clears throat> Excuse me. Through his vision, patience, and persistence, he found success where others had failed and in so doing opened the way to rapid development of this mighty agency in the advance of civilization. Now we move on to Samuel F.B. Morse. He was a pioneer of modern communication. Without our present facilities of communication, modern civilization could not continue. Deprived of telegraph, telephone, and radio, the wheels of industry would be stopped and the economic welfare of nations destroyed. We cannot too greatly emphasize this benefaction conferred upon all people through the accomplishment of Samuel Morse and the brilliant men who followed him with improvements upon his basic invention, the telegraph. Then we had the opening of the Erie Canal. Morse trained himself to think. Of all the thousands of those, of those whose attention was engaged by the opening of the Erie Canal in 1825, he alone caught the significance of the passage of time and relaying the message heralding that event. The signal was delivered by cannon placed at intervals between Buffalo and New York City, the successive reports of which conveyed from one emplacement to the next consumed one and a half hours of time in delivering the message a distance of 500 miles. The invention of the telegraph. Now, the reason and logic compelled him to believe that electricity made to travel many miles over copper wire in an instant of time could some method be interrupted in its passage so as to produce certain signals susceptible of interpretation. Busy in his profession as an artist in London, Italy, France, and at home, the idea of the control of electricity ever persisted in his mind. And with the passage of years, his patience was rewarded with the invention of the crude telegraphic instrument and a system of dot and dash signals to be used therewith. Forming a partnership with Alfred Vail, they labored together in the perfection of the device until their funds were exhausted. 
and then the appropriation from Congress. Undismayed, their persistent appeal to Congress for assistance was finally rewarded with an appropriation of $30,000 for the erection of the telegraph line, a distance of 40 miles between the cities of Baltimore and Washington. With the completion of its construction on the morning of May 24, 1844, in the presence of chief officers of the government in the Supreme Court room of the Capitol, Professor Morse, operating the key of his instrument, successfully transmitted to the wonder of all present that first and more memorable message. And that message was, What hath God wrought? Now, the improvement and amplification. Morse was a man of vision. He predicted the day when telegraph lines would span the earth and bridge the seas, yet even his far-seeing mind could never have encompassed the stupendous results which have come from his creation as a rich boon to all mankind. Men, great in scientific accomplishments, have followed with improvements and amplifications upon his invention. Alexander Bell and Associates applied his principle in perfecting the telephone. Thomas Edison improved the techniques as telegraph operator and inventor following his own powers of dedication into still broader fields. Marconi and others enriched his creative efforts in the field of wireless communication. Each passing year witnessed others' improvements and accomplishments, all a living testimony to Samuel Morse, the man of vision who, standing apart from the crowd, sold himself to a great idea, persisted against all odds until his efforts were crowned with success. Now, we move on to Captain John Erickson, and I think we are almost done here. Coming up on page 55, we're finishing up page 54. Section 69. Captain John Ericsson, pioneer of the modern battleship John Ericsson, a native of Sweden, directed his inventive genius to improvements in steam navigation. He claimed the invention of the screw propeller, but was unable to prove priority. Coming to the United States in 1839, he built the first screw propeller warship, the Princeton. This was the first steamship ever constructed with her boilers and engines below the waterline and was the beginning of the steam marine of the world. The Monitor Erickson would probably have remained unknown to the nation at large had it not been for his achievement during the Civil War. Using the revolving turret patents of Theodore Ruggles Timby, he combined a structure with all machinery below the waterline, leaving the turrets alone exposed to attack. This small vessel known as the Monitor called in derision the Yankee Cheese Box in its victory over the Miramau made Erickson famous in a day. Now, as we talk about the Navy and Merchant Marine, this caused a revolution in naval development among the world powers, increasing the effectiveness of fighting ships, thereby greatly strengthening the offensive and defensive forces of nations in proportion to their naval tonnage. Through the genius of John Erickson, the modern Navy and Merchant Marine have, has become one of the greatest factors in the development and security of nations. Section 70, Major Walter Reed. Now, he conquered Yellow Fever. He was known as the conqueror of Yellow Fever. Now, Major Walter Reed, a surgeon in the United States Army, conducted a long series of experiments in Cuba and discovered the source of yellow fever to be a stigomaya mosquito. The dream of his youth 
had to be permitted to alleviate in some degree the sufferings of humanity. And all his efforts without a thought of self were spent in striving toward this goal. Within a few months after this discovery, Habana, which had been ravaged by this disease for more than 150 years, was cleared of the disease. Now I wonder if it meant if it if they meant to spell Havana, but it's spelled Habana, and I'm wondering if it was a misspelling because if the keyboards back in the day for typewriters are the same as the modern keyboard on the computer, B and V are next to each other, but it does say Habana, not Havana. But I don't know, maybe it was Habana. I don't know. Continuing on with Major General Williams C. Gorgas, the conqueror of malaria. Now, through the efforts of Major General William C. Gorgas, who was in command of the medical and sanitary organizations of the United States Army and Panama, this pestiferous district was converted into the healthy region, into a healthy region. The French enterprise on the Isthmus of Panama was completely wrecked by the fevers common to that region. 75% of the employees from France died from the disease within a few months after they had landed on the Isthmus. As a result of the intensive efforts of Dr. Gorgas, the situation was conquered and Panama has become one of the healthiest spots on the continent. And that is the ending of the Section 4 of the uh, Field Training Manual 2000-25. Again, at Section 4, We just ended on, uh, let's see here, well, it's page 55, and then there's questions if you're looking at the PDF, page 56. So when we continue on on part eight for the EDU spot, we're going to be starting section five in the the war manual, where it talks about the economic development of America. So that should be a very exciting one to get into. So that is all we have for now. And um, it, I tell you, I really enjoy reading this because, you know, it's for me, it, it's, it's, it's a true history lesson that you'll never get in school. And I asked a friend who's in the assembly. Some of you may know him, Destry. Um, and there's others, too. I, I don't know how, you know, Destry, see, the reason I mentioned Destry a lot, he seems to not mind his name being spoken about. Others who I know and who are very wise, just as wise and very knowledgeable as him, I don't know. Uh, I try to keep their anonymity. Um, you know, I try to keep their, I, I guess, their names private because I don't know. Everybody's different with their names being blurted out there. So I, I try to really watch it. But, you know, I asked him, I said, why don't they, sh- why do they not teach this in school? outside of the Bible, because the Bi- I'm telling you, outside the Bible, th- this war training manual and the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, this war manual should be taught in schools, which is why I found it very, very valuable to read this in, you know, small parts for people to, you know, mentally uh, take in bite sizes of the manual, you know, because it, it, it is a lot of information. And so I try to do it in small bite sizes so people can mentally gobble them up and, 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 and you know, and internalize them, right? So that's why I do that. But a little sidebar, I do want to mention this. I thought this was kind of interesting. You might want to, you know, you guys might want to know this. As far as the Panama Canal there, what we were reading that last section there. So I happen to actually have met, and this is irrelevant from the war manual, but I have, have actually 
had the privilege of meeting a man by the name of George Brown. He has since passed. He lived, I believe, up into his late 80s, early 90s. I can't remember exactly how old he was before he passed of congestive heart failure. But he was a very wealthy man. He was, I believe, part owner of Wyandotte Popcorn. And he, he came from wealth, of course, when he was born. But his great, let's see, so his, I want to say it was his great-grandfather. I believe it was his great-grandfather that started the first steam shovel company, which, you know, bulldozers operated by steam. It was the first steam shovel company that was ever created. And that steam shovel company that belonged to his great-grandfather was the company that was uh, contracted and used to build the Panama Canal. When he shared that with me, I was like, wow. And I knew he wasn't BSing because when you see this guy's house, he had an east and a west wing of his home. It was so huge. He had a DeLorean in the driveway or in the garage and a Prius. It was kind of funny. I'm like, huh, well, that's interesting. But he, when he would take us through a tour of his house, the amount of artifacts and um, I don't even know what words to put it, almost museum-like pieces that he had attained from around the world, from Africa to Egypt to different parts of historic Europe, China, Australia, and everywhere in between. I mean, the guy had so much on display in his house. And when I say on display, I'm not talking in a sense of hoarding. This guy, his house was like a museum you walk through. It was amazing. But anyway, not important to the section here, but I just thought I'd let you all know. Yeah, I met the man where his great-grandfather had the first steam shovel company that was used to build the Panama Canal. And my memory just got jogged to that after I read that last section there. So I thought that was kind of cool. And so anyway, that's all I have for you today. Um, I'm going to try to come back a little bit later on today. My mom flew in late last night, technically early this morning. She didn't get here um, until about 3 a.m. Um, so I'm going to try later to do one more little His Hardline discussion. I'm going to discuss how we need more people in the assembly. I'm going to go over and read the JCO, which is also known as the Jural Covenant of Office. And I'm going to just explain exactly what we're looking for nationwide in all 50 states because things are going to be coming to a head toward the end of the year and more people are going to want to know what to do and what's required okay so and it's not going to take a lot of your time but we need more people in all state assemblies and i think if i recall correctly uh rita uh who's listening in right now uh i did pray for your event the other day i hope it was successful with your um, recruitment of patriots into the assembly there in California, the great state of California, by the way. And so uh, California is doing going to be making big moves. Georgia is on fire. Um, you know, there's other states that are getting their, their, you know, Missouri's doing wonderful with their recruitment. Um, the Carolinas, every, every state is starting to rise up Illinois. Okay. Um, there are more states that are getting getting their assemblies put together, and it's not a silver bullet. You're not going to achieve all of this in, in one day or one month. It is a process because, again, everything has to be done constitutionally by the law of the land. And so with every, you know, with all good things, you know, come to those who wait. And, of course, you it takes patience, too. 
And so um, she just said, we did have some calm come on the intro call. That's wonderful. She says, I believe we are growing very well. Praise the Lord. Yeah, praise the Lord indeed. And I pray for your success as well as the success of every state out there who has an assembly. Texas, Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, New Jersey, New York, Hawaii. I'm not going to forget about you, Hawaii, all the way out there in the Pacific. We will never forget you. And so, um, yeah, I tell you, 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 uh, you guys are going to see just exactly what's happening in the assembly here. And it's going to, you're going to see Michigan is very, it's going to be a very important state to watch come the end of the year. Can't get into reasons why, but a very, very important state to watch and not just for the nation to watch the world's going to be watching Michigan. I'm telling you, there's reasons behind it. And there's a reason why I'm going over this war training manual 2000-25 because a lot of what I'm reading here has everything to do with why the assemblies exist today. Gen like I said, I, if you didn't catch it in the beginning, the first two parts of the show, uh, the first two parts of um, the EDU spot, um, General Douglas MacArthur was the one that trained. He handpicked and trained some of the brightest special forces out there and trained them on this manual 2000-25. And on the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights. Okay. He trained these men up on this. And I believe some of them lived in Michigan. I believe one of them was the name of Robert Gilman. He's since passed, but there's still many more that are in the background working very hard. I believe Robert Gilman was one of them that uh, was underneath the command of General Douglas MacArthur. And some of the men that I know knew and trained under Robert Gilman. So, you know, to anybody out there that wants to question the legitimacy and the lawful assembly of the National Assembly, all you have to do is dig in the original founding documents on the National Assembly website that many people have dedicated their time traveling around the world to dig up this information. Remember, we are the original assembly before all these other ones started spinning off and, you know, starting their own things with people that have different names that people keep bringing up still. And they're like, well, what about this guy? Or what about this woman? No, no. They all spun off, took information that was original, reworked it, bastardized it, repackaged it, and they're trying to deceive and mislead people or profit or all the above. Be very aware of who you follow. Okay. And I implore everybody always research. This is why, again, I go over the EDU spot and read this, this 2000 dash 25. Okay. And yes, Rita's right. She also put in the comment board here. A lot of them, if it's not for profit or to, you know, try to, you know, thwart the progress of the National Assembly. It's also to get the American people, get them in trouble by getting them involved in something that is not right and lawful. So that's all I got to say on the subject. Again, this 2000-25 manual, it may sound like a history lesson, but as we proceed further and we get into the middle and toward the end of this manual, you will find the relevance of why I'm reading it 
and how it pertains to the assembly and where we're at today and where we're going tomorrow going forward. So that's all I have for you. I'm going to get off, make some coffee, and I'm going to enjoy the rest of this day. I'm caught up on laundry for now. And uh, yeah, just going to enjoy my time with my mom. She's here for the next two and a half weeks. I'm off work tomorrow. So I'll be back a little bit later. So I hope you'll have a great evening. We'll be back.